2: I'm Alex Rosenberg.
0: And I'm Justine Underhill.
2: And welcome to this week's Real Vision podcast.
0: Now, normally, this is where we bring you the latest episodes, the knock-on effect.
2: But uh, this week, 4th of July, has has us in a bit of a historical mood.
0: So we're going to bring you a historical episode of Adventures in Finance.
2: Yes, that's right. So you'll soon hear the, the dulcet tones of...
0: You say that so harshly. <laughs>
2: dulcet... Well, I... I it's not... My, they're not my dulcet tones, but I'm implying... Yes of Real Vision co-founder Grant Williams and former podcast co-host Aaron Chan. Uh, And they're joined here with guest Ben Hunt, who himself is the chief investment strategist at Salient Partners and the author of the Epsilon Theory blog.
0: And they will tell you about John Law, who is the Scottish economist who founded what some call France's first central bank. He's also just a really Interesting, unique historical character. Yeah,
2: a lot, a lot of angles to this guy. You know, gam—he's a, a gambler. He was involved in, in a in a duel. Ooh, intrigue. In- yeah, yes. uh, and and so so anyway, it, it's there's a bit of a history lesson, a bit of learning learning about this character, and then Grant and Aaron and Ben draw some parallels from the one of the earliest uh, what you could call central banks to central bankers today.
0: Cool. Enjoy.
3: This week, step back 300 years in time with us to meet a man who was both a friend of royalty and a murderer. A man who, over a short life, journeyed from aristocracy and riches to destitute poverty, laughingstock, and fugitive. Come with us and meet a man whose decisions led to the rise of Napoleon and a man who single handedly destroyed the French middle class and whose actions helped to make the guillotine the French executioner's weapon of choice. Oh, and by the way, come with us and meet a man who along the way also laid the foundations of the modern-day central banking system.
4: Here you've got this guy who reinvented himself a couple of times and in prison was going to be hanged, but got loose and, and, and had these ideas that they you say, oh, man... So much of our central banking theology is based on these ideas that he came up with around the time of of Louis the freaking 14th.
3: This week on Adventures in Finance, come with us on a journey back in time to 18th century France as we meet John Law, the godfather of central banking. All right, so Grant, let's start with a brief history of John Law. I know we could probably do a much longer segment of this, but let's keep it short and give the listeners the Coles notes. So he was born in Edinburgh, Scotland in 1671 to a family of goldsmiths and bankers. Well, uh, you know, we can probably think of another recent masterful central banker who was rooted in gold, but then eventually lost his way. Uh, But he began learning about the banking industry at the age of 14. He started by counting gold coins with his father. And unfortunately, upon the death of his father in 1688, he set out to London.
1: Yes, where this uh, young, handsome, smart, and relatively wealthy 18-year-old found uh, a natural home. He became a prolific gambler. He lost and won huge sums of money um, and wormed his way into the social elite of the time, which uh, was a precursor to later times in his life. He found himself embroiled in a love affair and was challenged to a duel, as was the way back then. Uh, And during the duel, he shot his opponent dead and was sentenced to death for murder, which was eventually uh, commuted to manslaughter. As if that wasn't enough, he eventually escaped prison, and then for the next 14
3: years, he travelled to and lived in several countries across the European continent. While abroad, he sustained himself through, you guessed it, gambling, and was even banned in certain cities for being a danger to the youth. Grant, I think they knew something back then about not cozying up to central bankers. (laughs) Anyways, during this time while travelling Europe, he spent time studying currencies and
1: monetary policy, and he eventually settled in Paris. And once he settled in Paris, he was nearly kicked out of the city for getting into trouble with the police chief. Uh, But that expulsion was actually stayed because, quite fortuitously, through his association with the High Society of Paris at the time, he'd fallen into the good graces of several French princes and dukes, one of whom, the Duke d'Orléans, would later alter law's life, the country, and the world forever. Now fast forward to September 1st,
3: 1715, This is when King Louis XIV, he died. And just like markets go from greed to fear in a split second, unparalleled adulation turned into scorn. Statues were torn down, and his memory was desecrated by the seething populace.
1: And for good reason. Yeah, at the time, France's finances were in utter shambles. The treasury was empty following the War of the Spanish Succession. The national debt was crippling, with the nation owing 21 times its tax receipts. Uh, And 80% of those tax receipts were being used just to cover the interest on the national debt. Is this story sounding familiar yet, I wonder? Now, the heir apparent at the time, Louis XV, was only five years old when his father died. And so the Duke of Orleans, our friend John Law's good buddy, uh, and Louis XV's great uncle, took over as Prince Regent until the young boy could ascend the throne. And it was in this perfect storm of economic turmoil and monarchical transition that John Law had his date with destiny. And at this point, John Law was already
3: renowned as one of the world's foremost monetary theorists and one of the greatest economists of his
1: time. And so the regent turned to his friend for advice. Just think about that for a second, Aaron. Here's a guy (laughs) who basically had been wandering around Europe reading about monetary policy, that was enough for him to be considered one of the world's foremost monetary theorists and greatest economists of his time. Now, no lesser economic mind than Joseph Schumpeter said those words about, uh, about law after the fact. And when you hear the rest of the story, the fact that anyone could say this after the fact just explains how entrenched some of these theories can be.
4: Well, you know, I know him through uh, Janet Gleason wrote a biography called Millionaire, which was a, a pretty straightforward, I think, a really good biography. I'd, I'd never heard of John Law before that.
3: That's Dr. Ben Hunt, chief investment strategist of Salient Partners, author of the widely read Epsilon Theory blog, and a former professor of political science at NYU and SMU.
4: Here you've got this this guy, you know, who reinvented himself a couple of times and was this in- <laughs> it was going to be hanged, but got loose and, and, and had these ideas that when you think about their application today, you say, oh man, so much of our central banking theology, and I, and I use that word advisedly, is based on these ideas that he came up with around the time of, of, of Louis the freaking 14th.
3: And here was John Law's coup de grace to alleviate France's economic woes.
4: The, here's the, the idea that John Law had, and, it, and it's based on this concept called uh, uh, real bills. All right? the, and, and so, so what does that mean? And, and what it means is, is, is pretty much this. Look, you're a bank, and it, so long as you're taking in essentially risk-free assets like gold or silver and you're discounting on that, you should issue as much paper money as the public wants to take. Right? You should, and, 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 and you're better off doing the paper money than the gold coins because, you know, there's not a lot of gold going around right now in France. But then if you take that idea a little bit farther, you say, well, right, yeah, gold and silver, we should be able to, you know, issue notes, print money on that. That makes sense. But, you know, land is pretty risk-free, too. Let's issue some paper money on land, you know, if you want to present that. And from there, it's a pretty small step. And this was the, the core idea behind this private bank, Banque Generale, that became the National Bank of France. Well, what about government bonds, right? Why, why shouldn't we take that as essentially a risk-free asset, right? The government's not going anywhere, right? This is really well before you know 1789 and uh, Louis the Sixth. So, why don't we accept that? and print money on the basis of that, too, issue notes. And so that was John Law's core idea, right? And that was, I think, entirely successful, and it's entirely the basis of what we have in our monetary banking system today. So what you ended up with in the Bank General was they capitalized it with, you know, one-fourth of the assets was actually coinage, you know, the gold and silver. But then three-fourths of the assets of the capitalization, the initial capitalization were government bonds, which you could say were worthless, or you could say if you're John Law and saying you got to believe, which is the same thing you've had in central banks today, no, it's money good.
1: Yeah, i just just like to uh, interject here for anybody listening that came in halfway through, we are actually talking about something that happened 300 years ago <laughs> and not last week.
3: Yeah, and that's one of the incredible things as we read about these stories. And at least for me, Grant, the first time I, come, uh, I start reading about monetary history, I have to sometimes like write on the side with these annotations like, wait, this is like this, you know. Or I remember reading this really small book, and I may, I've probably talked about this before in the podcast, uh, Fiat Inflation in France, written by Andrew Dixon White. Yeah, if they wrote
1: it today, it'd be a much bigger book.
3: Oh, uh, Yes, it would be. Um, but, you know, on the side, when he talks about society and culture, were you expecting a laugh? It was an inflation joke. Uh, Come on. Ah, uh, yes. I'm here all week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, you know, as I'm reading this book, I can't help but right on the margin, I was like, oh, this is, this is Kim Kardashian, you know? You know, Napoleon sounds like Donald Trump. I just, you know, it's
1: really Look, we we you, we've we've used this quote so many times in this podcast. I've used it so many times in my writing. This idea that history doesn't repeat but it rhymes. It, yeah, you know, it's so true. We're human beings. We are cyclical creatures. You know, the circle of life. To to use Elton John's great phrase, um, it's so true. Everything is cyclical. The mistakes we're making today, we've made before. You just have to give them long enough for people to forget, and enough people who haven't read history to to become. Uh, stewards of these things. And hey, presto, here we are again.
3: Right. And we're going to get back to the history. Um, and back to what Dr. Ben Hunt said, which is the government bonds had to be money good. And, and it had to be money good because the French government was desperate to pay off the mountain ranges of debt. Um, the idea was first to establish a private central bank, the Banque Générale Privé, which is um, Dr. Ben Hunt mentioned. And they took gold coin deposits from the public in exchange for a paper currency.
1: Yes, and that was paper currency, which was decreed to be the only acceptable method of payment for taxes, uh, or legal tender. Law's idea was that he would issue shares in the new bank, and then use the proceeds of that share sale to buy back and retire the country's debt outstanding. But there was
3: one problem. How do you bid
1: up government bonds without the price going up? Ah, you see, now this is the genius of the whole thing. And Law came up with just a fantastic idea he decreed that the only payment acceptable for shares in the Banque Générale Privé were, you've guessed it, government bonds. Absolutely brilliant. And
3: this was the first major pillar of John Law's plan, or scheme, you can call it. And to his credit, it actually succeeded in reanimating the French people and kick the economy.
4: That absolutely worked. And it got them out of this deflationary trap where they were, were able to issue more money, to print more money, then they actually had gold coins for it. And this whole notion of, yeah, government bonds, that's a risk-free asset that we should be able to own and print money on the basis of.
3: And it worked incredibly well. So well that one year into the scheme, the paper money would trade at a 15% premium to the comparable amount of gold coin.
4: But then, like, like all good things, you always take it a step too far, right? And so what John Law said was, well, you know, all right, we, we've gotten out of this, you know the depths of deflation here, and we're printing this money, and it seems to be working pretty well. It's stimulating real economic activity. but you know what? we've still got this huge national debt, and i'm john law i'm a i'm a I'm a gambler at heart. he really was. What about a trade monopoly? Isn't that money good too?
1: Yes, and this was the second pillar of John Law's crazy scheme. Uh, he persuaded the Prince Regent to grant him a royal charter to explore and exploit the riches of the American Territory of Louisiana, which was named after, of course, Louis.
4: <laughs> so you see where this is going, right? And, and so you, you move from, well, gold and silver to land to government bonds. You know, here in the U.S., we've moved to mortgage-backed securities, right? That that's kind of money good, at least the, for the, the Fed purchases in the the Fannie and Freddie uh, backstop that the government has well what about uh owning you know etfs right? like or or the Swiss national bank? well let's own apple isn't that money good sure it is well that was the same thing that john law did but he kind of even went one step farther than that which is that he created the company that they were issuing the shares and then printing the money off of
3: That must have every modern central banker, you know, seething with envy, because I mean, not only do they print the money, but you can actually create the company upon which you're going to securitize
1: and capitalise. I mean, well, if- you could. I mean, it worked for John Law. This is the problem, right? They haven't, they haven't quite gone this far. And when we talk about extreme monetary policy today, yeah, you know, you've got nothing on John Law. In early 1719, yeah, you know, he launched the Mississippi Company, and issued shares to just a massive demand from the public. The first IPO, uh, they sold 50,000 shares at 500 livre each. Uh, and of course, as all good uh, capitalists, it was, a, it was an installment system. You had to put 75 uh, livre down immediately, and then you paid the rest in installments over 19 months. And the IPO was oversubscribed six times. And before the second installment was due, the price had doubled. So you can probably guess what happened.
3: Right. And then law decided on a secondary offering of three hundred thousand shares at five hundred leaves to be paid in ten installments. But what actually lay beneath this groundswell or fervent demand from the people?
4: People wanna believe. People wanna believe. I, I know in kind of our business of punditry it pays to be the, you know, the voice of doom, right? But gosh, you know, people they want to believe. And and what John Law was, was really good at doing was creating this amazing narrative or story Around Louisiana, and the potential, the riches that were sure to come from this trading monopoly that the government of France had given him—you know, not just over the Americas, but over the uh, Asia, everywhere. I mean, he had a monopoly over French trade with the non-European world, and you know, he, you know, printed articles, and they, you know. They <laughs> it's just some funny stories I I think or kind of not maybe not ha ha stories, but uh you know, about how they would, you know, release prisoners and put them on ships and say, You're free, but you know, your condition of getting out is we're gonna ship you over to Louisiana and you're gonna make your way, you know, start working over there. He was very successful in creating a very positive story around the opportunity and the riches that come out of the new world. You know, I'll leave any comparisons to uh, Tesla for someone else to make. But, uh, you know, that's not unique to us. It's not unique to investors and consumers in 17th century France. It's part of the human condition. And so, you know, John Law was very good at constructing and playing to that narrative in the same way that so many successful Certainly, technology CEOs and management teams are successful at constructing it today.
3: So, Grant, I, I don't, I haven't seen the prospectus for the Mississippi company, but I'm pretty sure that Louisiana is mainly swampland and didn't have the gold and silver and the natural resources that were advertised. Yeah, it's funny. Just you a know, hunch.
1: Yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, I, I have nothing against the South. I love the South of America, and you know, Louisiana is a very nice place. But I mean, yes. if for anyone that hasn't been there, uh, it, it would be hard to describe it as a lush, verdant place full of gold and silver and precious metals. And, you know, it is, as Aaron says, there's, there's a lot of swamp land down in, in the South. But, you know, Ben makes the kind of uh, offhand comment about Elon Musk. But um, this is exactly how these things happen. You know, it, it's it's the guys who can construct a narrative that an audience or a public want to buy into because it offers a dream, it offers a chance for you know great gain and great wealth. And, and again, it's a story as old as the hills. It really is. And, and by mid-1719,
3: the Mississippi company had already issued 600,000 shares. And the par value of the company, I guess you could say like the market cap, at the time was 300 million livres. So this was really like the first 10-bagger in history, yeah. uh, as the stock price reached 5,000 livres in a matter of weeks.
1: Yeah, this is an incredible return on investment for, for the people of France who were, quote, unquote, lucky enough to be allotted shares in the IPO. You now, the price eventually rose to 10,000 livres in the summer. Uh, and this is where all over Paris, the first utterances of a brand new word was being, were being heard, the word Millionaire. Millionaire, yeah, exactly. And seeing these results, the Prince
3: Regent anointed John Law in 1720 with the title of France's Controller General of Finances. So I guess this is the equivalent of uh, Chairman of the Fed these days? I, or? I would think that's a fair comparison to make. Yeah. Right. Uh, but shortly after his elevation to this vaunted position, something curious happened.
1: Yeah, just as quickly as this whole scheme uh, rose to prominence, the cracks below the surface started to widen. And it began with people deciding that having made all this money uh, through their shares, they kind of wanted to convert those shares back into physical gold once again.
4: If you look at why it failed, you know, the John Law, I don't think he was even able to conceive of the idea. Although France actually did try to outlaw, you know, like we have in this country in the past, you know, the private ownership of gold. But... They still had that convertibility. They were still ultimately on a gold standard, and that's ultimately what made this system of belief that John Law wanted to implement, and that we certainly have today, that's what made it fail back then.
1: This is fascinating to me, because we, we talk about this, uh, the gold standard is talked about as something that, that just shackles bankers, and it's, it's too restrictive. All that was happening back here was people had the option, instead of owning paper— to own gold. And guess what? Once they've made their paper gains, and we talk about cyclicality all the time, as we have done already in this uh, in this episode. Once again, cyclically, they said, you know what? This is great. I've made all this money. But you know, I'd rather not keep it in paper. I would rather, you know, I'd rather have the gold.
3: And you know what else is cyclical, uh, Grant, is that John Law's reaction to these redemptions, it would become the playbook for future central bankers uh, that came after him. He limited the use of gold by the public. Uh, He even offered to buy the Mississippi shares at a premium with freshly minted notes, which kind of doesn't make sense, right? Because it sets off this reflexive situation where more notes enter the system, which would in turn come back to the bank for redemption into gold. Eventually the bank was forced to close for 10 days.
1: Yeah, of course, it's it's a temporary close. Uh, But of course, once the bank closes, there's no access to the money. now, this was supposed to buy law time, but uh, but it did nothing of the sort. Um, as you said, Aaron, they're stuck in this feedback loop. They keep printing paper cash, um, but ultimately that no, no amount of paper cash is going to substitute for physical gold. When people want something that matters, something that they feel is worth uh, something, they always want gold. I mean, law tried to criminalise the selling of gold, uh, anything at this point, to try and stop the people converting but there was just such a massive backlash from the people of Paris that they very quickly had to reverse that, uh, reverse that criminalization. Don't forget, this is a time when uh, leaders of countries, particularly France, would be separated from their heads uh, by angry crowds. So uh, it wasn't quite as easy back then. And, of course, the inevitable happened. Right. And hyperinflation ensued.
4: There was another proximate cause that I want to talk about, and, and that's kind of the political aspect of this, because my strong view is that politics always trumps economics, right? You can have the most beautiful and elegant economic scheme in the world, but if it doesn't work for the political powers that be, then it's going to fail, right? So, so what, what ultimately really crippled this from a political perspective, my view, is that the food prices went up so dramatically, uh, in France and in Paris in particular, and if there 's one thing even a pre Marie antoinette sovereign of France cares about it 's do the <laughs> do the peasants do the peasants have uh, can they buy their food right because that that is what leads to impactful riots, shall we say uh, and, uh, and and a loss of legitimacy for any sovereign so so once food prices start to get out of control, the word went out to law you know, we gotta we gotta shut this down. We gotta bring this down. And that's the problem when you've got any sort of meteoric rise or bubble. Once you pop the bubble, right, and I think cryptocurrencies could be an example of that today, once you pop the bubble, there's no there there, right? There's no fundamental bottom for this because none of this was being driven on some fundamental notion of what the asset actually yields.
1: You know, Ben's point there about people being able to be fed uh, is that's what this all boils down to. You know, We saw this with the Arab Spring. It's the Achilles heel in China. When, when that kind of unrest and people can't feed their families, that kind of unrest spreads like a fern. It just goes everywhere really, really fast. And it's the biggest threat to, uh, at this point, a monarchy, um, later times uh, democracy. It's the, it's the single biggest threat.
3: Right. And I guess like there there it comes a certain point in your in your own like internal calculus of risk rewards like you know what? I can either go and like work or I can riot and try and get like food. And that becomes skewed when, you know, something like food becomes forty percent or fifty percent of your of your income.
1: Well, and the prices are going up in in you know fiat or loosely fiat currency every day. And yeah, so John
3: Law had to shut it down and things came to a, a screeching halt. Um, Later on, John Law would have to flee for Italy and would die a pauper. Um, His name was disgraced and what ensued in the decades afterwards was political and social turmoil in France.
1: Fortunately, the French had yet to invent the guillotine at this point. But funnily enough, it, uh, it was invented fairly soon after this happened and the French would start putting it to fairly frequent use.
3: But, you know, this is the sort of destruction of the middle class that set the country into financial ruin and, and turmoil, and ultimately creating a fertile ground for massive political upheaval, the, the French Revolution in 1789, and ultimately the rise of Napoleon in 1799.
1: Yeah, all of these things, uh, in a very turbulent period in France's history, can be tied back to the very fateful decisions of one exiled Scottish gentleman who just happened to befriend the Prince Regent. And so you can see how bringing someone in from the outside uh, and just giving them carte blanche and, and so much sway over politics and political decisions at the time can create incredible problems for a country.
4: The whole notion of domestic politics is that the rules of the game, the rules of the market, the rules of investing, the rules of what's allowed, whether it's gold ownership or you know, banking regulations, you know, Dodd-Frank or anything. The whole notion of what is allowed, what are the rules and how do they change, is driven by your political leaders, period, full stop. Now, your political leaders, your political leaders, even in France in the, you know, 1700s, they cared about food riots in Paris, Right, and this is still at the height of divine rights of kings. Right, they cared about food riots in Paris. Well, it's the same with our leaders today. We can talk about international economic logic, and we can talk about, oh, how we want to have this free trade policy or this uh, globalization uh, immigration policy because it does add to the general utility, the you know, bigger economic pie, in the, in the in like it does. It really does. But those goodies, that bigger economic pie and the like, may not be distributed equally. And if the losers in these sort of globalization policies are the equivalent of the Parisian bourgeoisie who now have to pay twice as much for their bread as they used to, well, that's going to be a political problem. And that will always create a political reaction where either through a political entrepreneur or through the existing political elites understanding that they're in trouble, that is what's going to drive policy, even if it's not as quote-unquote smart or as beneficial for all as the globalization policy might have been. So it's food riots in 1720, it's Trump rallies in Tallahassee and, you know, 2016. I got to tell you, man, it, it, again, history history doesn't repeat, but it sure does rhyme.
3: You know, Grant, this concept of history not repeating but rhyming is so powerful because I think it, it's all about human nature. And it's not that we're doomed to make the same exact same mistakes, but it's the power of narrative to induce mass greed and fear that I find so fascinating.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's ironic that that phrase has rhymed three times throughout this podcast you know Ben's Ben's used it I've used it you've used it and it's so true and it's a big part of what I think we're trying to do with the Ventures in Finance is is try and bring these stories to life and 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 it's a big part of why we study monetary and financial history because because they do happen over and over and over again Um, but of course there's no point in analyzing history uh, unless you actually sit down and think about what we can learn from it.
4: Yeah, when, I, when I say that the power of, of story and narrative isn't unique to 17th century France or, or us today or the like, I, I say that because it, it really is who we are as a, in, in terms of being the, the, the human animal. So humans are almost unique among mammalian species in the sense that they are true, in the true sense of the word, social animals. And there's, you know, this long characteristic of what it means to be a social animal, but it's really rare. And it's so rare that the four species for which it's most pronounced humans, bees, ants, and termites it's, I would argue the four most successful species on the planet. And the real hallmark of what it means to be a social animal is that a social animal swims in a sea of communication. Now, For those insect species I mentioned, the sea they swim in is a literally, you know, a chemical ocean of pheromones that go through the air and they take in and that's how they communicate, right? For humans, it's words. And what I mean by we swim in the sea of communications and what I mean by the sense that this is biological as much as it is social is that we are literally evolved over tens of millions of years to respond to communications, verbal, you know, the words that we speak and that we read in exactly the same way that ants, bees, and termites are evolved to respond to, 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 to pheromones. Now, look, it, it, it's not, you know, it, it, it's not some, I'm not rejecting free will or any of this stuff, I'm just pointing out that, that this is not an accident And in fact, I would also argue it's part and parcel of why we are such a successful species, that we have this ability to motivate ourselves in vast groups and to organize our societies around the power of these stories and these communications.
3: And so this idea of communication and narrative to drive massive human efforts and to influence herd mentality is littered across history, which is why we study it. And the story of John Law and the Mississippi Scheme was just one of of those examples. But I think it's an important example because this narrative tool, which was once reserved just for politicians, has now shifted to other capable and no less impactful hands.
4: Now, look, this is something that politicians have known for thousands of years. And they've been very successful, or that's the hallmark of a successful politician. Can you tell the story that motivates people? What's relatively new is that central bankers have gotten in on the act. So this is, is what they refer to as communication policy, is what they refer to as expanded forward guidance, but it's the whole notion that we are going to intentionally use our words not to describe what we're actually thinking, but to try to impact your behavior, Mr. Investor, right? so that the words are used intentionally to try to change another's behavior as opposed to a... A, a, a truthful rendition of what you're actually thinking or, or meaning, you know what we might call lying under other circumstances. But this is how the the social, the human social game has been played for eons, and and now central bankers are catching up and catching up really well.
1: Yeah, Ben's right. This this game is older than leather, and this is if this is how the game is played. It's so important for us to first understand and recognize that. We are being played. This is happening to us. It's deliberately being imposed upon us to try and uh, make us bend a certain way to try and fit in and try and avoid these problems that, that John Law and, and Louis Fifteenth saw back in France 300 years ago. You know, at every level, whether it's investment banks or the mainstream me- media, this, this idea of, of the establishment, um, you know, they will use their ability just to shape this narrative Uh, to influence social uh, public behavior to their advantage and and to the advantage of their constituents.
4: Every firm on the street recognizes this is now how the game is played and how effective this is. The business model of the street on its research is to drive trading volume. And how you drive trading volume, you create a story around that stock. So it's it's everywhere today. It's it's with the... uh, you know, why did Jeff Bezos buy the Washington Post? Because he wanted to have the ability to construct and impact the stories that, that you know, influence us. Um, you, you know, why is, you know, Mark Zuckerberg going on his listening tour of America, right, in, you know, preparation for some political career? is because he recognizes how important owning one of these media platforms like Facebook can be for how society is organized.
1: See, Grant, I told you it all come back to Mark Zuckerberg. You did indeed. It's funny how, how <laughs> we are 300 years later talking about these stories. And hey, we're twice the same podcast. We have uh, the leader of Facebook. That's right. And, and, but you know, since we're on Facebook,
3: I, I think as much as the internet has expanded uh, the established powers, reach and ability to influence narrative, the internet has also served as sort of this great Equalizer, I would say, um, and allows independent analysts, writers, journalists to to merge and, and in theory and in practice to reach just as many people as the incumbent narrative shifters. I guess in very
1: Yeah, I, I think you're right, Aaron. But the, the the only problem is, obviously, you have to seek that stuff out. You have to go and look for these people, and you have to be of a mind which is curious enough to want to find out more. Because we have mainstream news services pumped into us from whether it be newspapers like the Washington Post, as, as Ben points out, or CNN or Fox and MSNBC. Or whatever shows up on your news feed on Facebook. Yeah, I mean, and you, you can select where you get your news from, but if you're only selecting it from amongst the mainstream media, you don't allow guys like Ben Hunt into your world to, to bring their perspective on this. Um, it, it's, it really doesn't change anything. There's this narrative landscape has been flattened in some ways, um, and and we have afforded opportunities uh, for these rapid shifts to occur elsewhere, but that's not the only the only story in town.
3: Absolutely not. And and Ben, I think his perspective on narrative, politics, and and game theory are all crucial to understand as we think about how narratives drive society and the collective actions that we take. And I don't think anyone covers this better than Ben uh, as far as how they relate to markets.
4: If you're interested in reading more about this, it's the uh... It's called Epsilon Theory, right? And it's at EpsilonTheory.com. We've got a a number of contributors now, and I try to write a piece, uh, you know, every couple of weeks. Uh, There's a library of content there now, and it it really is trying to look at the world, the investing world in particular, through these lenses of game theory, you know, what we've been talking about, about playing the player, as well as the lens of history. And, um, you know, it's, it's particularly in this... Overly uh, scientificized world, this world where everyone's trying to play us, I think just uh, any sort of content we can have to kind of bring us back and see oh this has happened before or just to, to to arm us against believing in our heart of hearts the stories that are being woven for us. yeah you know, that's what I'm trying to do.
3: You know Grant I remember when we first uh, when we were on our call with Dr. Hunt. Uh, you said one thing in response to what he said, and it was that, you know what, like reading Epsilon Theory is the only time where I come away feeling smarter and also dumber at the same time. And uh, yeah, just being able to spend some time with Dr. Hunt and to hear his perspective. I don't know of anyone else who really incorporates and integrates politics with markets the same way that he does.
1: No, nobody does what Ben does. And, and you know, we'll we'll do it again. It's, uh, it's, it's worthy of a second plug. Anybody listening to this that doesn't subscribe to Epsilon Theory, you know, it's a free... It's a free site. Um, there's so much information on there, and, and Ben is just such an incredible communicator. I, I just can't recommend that highly enough. It's something I subscribe to and read every chance I can.
2: Yeah, so I hope you enjoyed that. Basically, John Law, th- this fascinating character, some call him the the father of central banking.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting to see how narrative came up so many times in the in the discussion there and how telling a good story and how basically i mean in some ways he was able to create this larger than life persona that many believed and fell into and so that's actually my number one lesson on how to create a, a good business or maybe not good i'll change that
2: well it was um, good it was good while it lasted i mean yes okay it,
0: yeah good for him and in during the time
2: during the time although he he died i think uh you know he went to he kept gambling. It reminds me of that story of, of I think it's Nick the Greek who played like the biggest poker game of all time and they later found him in a casino in uh in California playing some, you know, minuscule like five ten limit hold'em games. And someone's like, Oh my god, how could you play this when you're playing the biggest game of all time? And he just said I love the action.
0: <laughs> that is not the way I want to go out. Do no. you Do you think it was apt of them to compare John Law to some of the big CEOs uh... of our time? I mean, because I heard the Elon Musk name come up.
2: Yeah, I mean, sure. I mean, I, I think Elon Musk, and and this, this is a, it, there wasn't really a prediction, but there's a prediction baked in there. And I think it's starting to be a bit borne out that maybe people were sold on something that wasn't entirely all there. Yeah. And... Yeah, I, I mean, I I don't know. I, I think it's it's interesting the extent to which communication has changed, and yet the tech, as as they said so eloquently, humans haven't changed. So the same techniques that could lure someone to spend their money then could could do that now.
0: Well, everyone likes to buy into a good story. Yeah, I know. I suffer from that too. Yeah, yeah. Do you do, you do you
2: sometimes invest in in companies plundering parts of Mississippi that? Or less fertile than it turned out to be?
0: <laughs> well, um, I've definitely plundered some money into tech companies that probably talk a bigger game than they're actually worth. Oh, so, so
2: you're the one who bought all those shares of Theranos.
0: Ah, that was me. Whoops. Yeah.
2: All right. Well, uh, th- that's all That's all the banter you're getting this time. <laughs> uh, that's all for this week. Uh, we'll be back next week with, with a fresh episode of the Kanakon Effect.
0: Ah, and in the meantime, for more on central banks uh, and a lot more on central banks. You said
2: ah oh, like you were surprised. Like, oh, shit, we had to do another knock on effect. Here.
0: No, I just I, I like how you pronounce the can- ah
2: Yes. Can-
0: that's the new way of pronouncing knock yes. on effect. So if you want uh, more on central banks, make sure to re- visit realvision.com. And you might consider signing up for a 14 day free trial. Bye for new. Bye for now.
2: Bye bye for new. that's He's Scottish. You get it?
0: Oh, uh, <laughs> see you guys next week.